the sparkle comes off crown, Morrison's IR omnibus bill hits a pothole, and is the good news about Eddie Maguire or albatrosses? This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and with me, all as always on a Wednesday, is the great, the puppy-cuddling, <laughs> the light-destroying Van Batam. Yes, the dog is on my lap and almost took out one of the lights in the shed. So, well done, Germanicus, you agent of chaos. Yes, you'll hear Germanicus snuffling around today. He's been a bit discombobulated today. I think the change in the weather has got him. It's a change in the weather, and as Ben and I found out, the dog is particularly fond of uh, a self-fermented apple brandy, which of course occurs when he gets into the apples that fall off our tree, and he gets very drunk, and we get random crying and walking into the wrong room and not remembering why he's there. Isn't that true, Germanicus? You lush. He's now chewing on his paw in a sign of contempt for us. But Van... (laughs) This week uh, has been a big week already, and last night uh, there's been some big news around It's such a big week, we're not even talking about the Trump impeachment. I'd just like to state (laughs) that for a record. There's uh, enough on that we're just going to ignore America's constitutional crisis and plough on. As far as I'm concerned, the Americans have now got themselves sorted out. They've got themselves (laughs) a decent president and a proper Congress, and we can leave them now finally to their own devices. Uh, Full confession, whenever Dr. Jill does an ad with the dogs, I cry. (laughs) But back here in Australia, just last night, we've seen the latest in the Barangaroo saga and the issues with Crown Casino. Of course, this has been a long-running saga, and I think sometimes we forget just how long. You know, we're talking decade-plus issues here. It goes right back to before even the Liberals took power. There was discussion about what to do with this site and what would happen. Of course, since the Liberals took power, uh, it became a hotel casino site under the um, auspices of the uh, James Packer control. I mean, how could it have gone wrong, you know, like a multi-decade irresolved problem about why and how to develop a site, a Liberal government that is totally focused on money and the Packer family. I mean, amazing (laughs) that it all seems to have caused an enormous ethical and moral dilemma. Maybe you'd like to talk us through. So Barangaroo, um, just for anybody out interstate is an area in the inner city of Sydney right on the harbour land that used to be used for industrial purposes for shipping Mm. and storage containers and things like that and it's in a very very prime place but and it's near the King Street Wharf sort of development and all these places so glitzy Sydney you know where you can do all your your naughtiness and the rest of it and the idea has been to build another casino also known as a licence to print money but everything has gone wrong Ben. Well that's right I mean this is a site that um, some Aboriginal elders have called cursed but Barangaroo uh, the name Barangaroo refers to the wife of Bennelong in the development of the site uh, a number of of people died uh, so you had people crushed by steel beams uh, you had people falling 30 metres to their death you there had... was a refusal to listen to the union around Absolutely. safety concerns wow it's almost like there's a pattern of that happening Ben it's a, it's a, been an, an incredible process I mean you look at the secrecy around the process the secrecy around the site you start to understand I think some of the cultural things that have led to the kinds of decisions and recommendations that were handed down yesterday and recently about Crown in particular. So you had all these kind of costings were not 
uh, made public. The benefits for the public were not made public. Uh, so there was lots and lots of secrecy, lots of problems with the site, uh, lots of uh, just accidents, shoddiness, weird accounting, strange tenders. It's not been <laughs> at any point a very transparent process no. around a significant development that's going to have huge impact on Sydney. To the point when people were questioning this, uh, including in The Guardian, I should say, people were really uh, questioning and highlighting some of these issues. James Packer took out massive amounts of advertising to promote what the casino would do, why it was important, the jobs it would create, and how you know this great ethical development was good for Sydney and Australia and the world. And of course, also then got some positive media in a lot of those outlets. No way. If you spend a lot of money purchasing advertising in media outlets, do those same media outlets give you positive coverage, Ben? Is that a thing that can happen? Well, it certainly did for Barangaroo, right? What a strange coincidence. And what we now know, this is not speculation anymore. I love how the dog is grunting at the mention of James Packer. Continue. We now know that Crown was engaged in unethical behaviour, including the facilitation of money laundering. So when you open a casino, it's right and proper that government looks into who these people are that want to open a casino, what kind of issues might they have, are they proper people to run a casino? Casino is a billion-dollar enterprises, hire a lot of people, and, of course, engage in an activity which has social impacts as well. And just for those of you who didn't grow up on the mean streets as I did, what money laundering is is when you essentially wash the proceeds of crime. So you might be running uh, illegal games, gambling dens or other sort of vice operations or generally in Australia selling drugs and lots and lots of drugs and you have to find a way of making that money appear in legitimate accounts. And, of course, a really easy way of doing this is by being mysteriously paid out huge jackpots of money when you just happen to be gambling in uh, a you know gambling place or a casino. And yep. I, like, I obviously know a lot about this because I grew up in the club industry where my dad, who was a club club manager went around and like worked for teams of lawyers to investigate um, money laundering and suspicious transactions. Because when a gambling facility is going broke in the state of New South Wales, there's only ever one reason, and it's because somebody is doing something very dodgy. Yes. And what has been found in the investigation into Crown's application for a licence is that actually Crown was doing things very, very dodgy. So this is before they've opened the casino in Sydney, <laughs> right? before it's even happened. So this is when they have a casino in Melbourne and a casino in Perth. And there was a great expose, uh, 60 Minutes and the AHSMH um, investigated what was going on inside Crown. So what they found and what has been found in the investigation since is that there was a total lack of transparency, a total lack of accountability, and in fact, the facilitation of money laundering to the point where former Liberal Minister Helen Coonan... Didn't she used to be Minister for Communications? She was. Which is a fairly big portfolio. Like, we're not talking about some Liberal from the back of beyond. No, no, she has admitted... She has admitted uh, to the investigation that Crown had facilitated money laundering 
due to a lack of um, appropriate policy. So it hasn't said, look, we did this on purpose, but has said... It was yes. just a bit of accidental money laundering. Yeah. So when you think about... So how does it get to this point, right? So you've got all the problems with construction. I mean, I can tell problems. you how it gets to that point. I mean, I can tell you how it gets to the point of money laundering, and that is that you have uh, a lack of transparency, that your accounts are all over the place, that you have people who are working for you who are disreputable and willing to bend the rules, and that deals are being made with people who have money that they would like to watch. That's how money laundering happens. And in the case of Crown specifically, this has occurred because Crown has seen the opportunity to make huge profits off gamblers, primarily from overseas, by facilitating their accounts here in Australia. So what what has been quite clearly uncovered is that Crown has a subsidiary called Southbank. Funnily enough, Crown Casino in Melbourne is on Southbank, and uh, Riverbank, which is also where there's a casino in Perth, Crown Casino in Perth, Riverbank. Uh, And these two subsidiaries opened and held accounts for multiple high-roller gamblers uh, and received millions of dollars, millions of dollars in deposits, in transactions that were made in cash, either at ATMs or branches, uh, that came just under the declaration threshold. So in Australia, part of our anti-money laundering is if somebody deposits $10,000 cash, they have to make a declaration about where the cash is from and all the rest of it so that it can be tracked and understood. And so we know that it's not from drugs or some other um, illicit form of activity. What was happening uh, and what appears to have been happening according to the investigation is that companies who acted as an intermediary between Crown Casino and these high rollers, often from China, would come and put these deposits in these accounts and rack up millions and millions and millions of dollars into these accounts. The high rollers would then be brought out by the same companies to a Crown facility where they would gamble, stay in the hotel, spend money locally, and the money in the accounts would then effectively have been washed, right? There's a reference to it being called smurfing, where you have illegitimate funds mixed in with the legitimate funds of others, right? Now, Issues were raised about this. Some of the Crown employees themselves in China raised issues with the former chair about this is a high-risk thing, we think there's a problem here, we think the Chinese government thinks there's a problem here. And, of course, some years ago, those employees were arrested by the Chinese government. In China. In China, because of this kind of activity. Nothing changed. The former chair was asked to appear before the inquiry. The former chair of Crown. The former chair of Crown was asked to appear before the inquiry refused to appear, refused to respond to questions. The inquiry has now suggested that ASIC investigate him. He's refused to uh, respond to those uh, requests for investigation as well. But you start to see a real culture within Crown. Now, when the expose came out uh, a couple of years ago, the response from people like James Packer, Andrew Demetrio, who's on the board, uh, and other board members as well, was to attack the journalists, was to say this is all nonsense, this is because you don't like the fact we're building our grand thing at Barangaroo. Wowzers. Wowzers, all this kind of rhetoric. Um, And, of course, the reality is that has now come out is that James Packer was threatening people. He's uh, he's described his own behaviour as shameful and disgraceful. The... 
the chair of Crown, who was questioned during the investigation, has admitted that he was never given any training in anti-money laundering. Which is a big deal. I mean, oh, having huge. a father who worked for RSLs, which, let's face it, on the in the grand pyramid of luxury gambling is very down the bottom, like a suburban RSL yeah. clubs in New South Wales. And yet my dad had an ongoing relationship with licensing police, brought anything to their attention that was suspicious or weird. I, of course, had an extremely bizarre childhood where Often we had to leave places in the middle of the night because there were hits put on my dad from organised crime, which was very normal. And I've got to say thank you, everybody. Thank you, James Packer, for letting me have the opportunity to feel my childhood, which was very weird, has value to add to this conversation. <laughs> I just want to explain to people with money laundering and gambling and the way it works. So if you put a million dollars into your account mm. and you might only win back 800000 mm. or, or 700000 that's but that's how you wash the money because you've taken a loss um, but the money goes to the people who are providing the service of the laundry where everything is getting nice and clean. And when you consider that there's often um, no tax payable on gambling winnings as well. so Not in Australia. Not in Australia. So you've got this opportunity to... Sorry, we've just knocked over the light. The dog has won and the light has been knocked over. Thank you, Germanicus. Um, the you've got this opportunity to effectively wash the money, illegitimate money, uh, and st- and essentially t- pay tax in inverted commas to the launderer of it at a lower rate than you would pay tax to the government on legitimate funds. Like, the whole thing is bad, right? There's well, no you were talking about how there they were teams of people running around making deposits in accounts of less than $1,000. Less than $10,000. Less than $10,000, so they didn't have to be declared. That's right. So that's how that's how you get the money into the account to begin with, right, is that the money comes into the account with under the declaration limit, so nobody needs to know where it comes from, but it builds up, right? And it's because it's all different transactions, it's it's okay, it's And okay. it gets pulled and... And then it gets pulled and suddenly you've got this big pool of money that really nobody knows where it's come from because it's all come in small amounts. Now, it all kind of blew up because in the high roller room at Crown, there's a limit on how much cash can be in the room and I think it's about $150,000. What happened was one of these third-party companies, one of these facilitation companies, if you like... The guys who organise the guys who go around and deposit the money and... And who organise the high rollers to come out had $1.5 million in cash on them. And somebody went, we're blowing the whistle here, we're reporting this, that that's a problem. You can't have that much cash here. And, of course, this investigation has now found out that, you know, the whole edifice of Crown underneath has been... Underneath this edifice has been really corrupt. Um, And while there are no direct allegations against board members or senior staff... Or individuals nobody has been named. No, no. there is a clear culture and cultural problem within that organisation, so much so that now uh, New South Wales uh, independent body that determines whether or not gaming licences are given out has a report from an inquiry that says Crown is unsuitable to hold a gaming licence in New South Wales. The knock-on effects of this could be massive, right? Crown Casino in Melbourne is a huge enterprise. It employs lots of people. It passes lots of money back in tax. Um, It does attract international visitors. 
likewise with likewise with Crown in Perth. And this is the thing, like Crown employs just an army of people, like musicians mm. and entertainers and, you know, and croupiers and restaurant staff. And these are huge enterprises that are really actually important to local economies. But and what- the idea that this could all be brought down because of tricky business in the high roller room is really... Oh, it's disgusting, right? It's an ongoing structural problem. Like, as you know, I I have no problem with gambling. In fact, mm. it is my one vice. <laughs> yeah. um, and But I, because of the family that I come from, I believe very, very strongly in state-owned and non-profit gambling operations mm. and absolute regulation. For me, I see what's going on at Crown as an opportunity for the state to take over the management of these kind of facilities and go, hang on, if we're employing all these people, um, if it is a potentially... If it's a potentially dodgy enterprise, mm. there shouldn't be a profit motive around these kind of places, and, these and the state are, should take operation. And these things are incredibly profitable. I have no doubt that the share, the shares in Crown have been taking a hammering, of course, because of all of this. Uh, and there is a profit-driven motive here, and there are lots of people who stand to gain from dodgy behaviour in gambling, um, and. Companies like Crown uh, become essentially too big to fail, and that becomes a problem. You know, if Crown's licences are taken away in Victoria and WA, if they're not granted the licence in New South Wales, the New South Wales development was a $2.2 billion investment for Crown. Then this question of, well, what's going to happen with all of this infrastructure, what's going to happen to all of these jobs, gets raised. And unfortunately, we sort of live in a time where there's a, a view that you, the government couldn't possibly step in. And already people are speculating, well, could a different casino provider step in? Da, 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 da. But yes, I'm with maybe you. one of those lovely gentlemen from Macau who's so ethical and high-minded. <laughs> but I'm with you, Van. I mean, the state, the state can step in. The state should step in. There are lots of examples around the world where the state does run um, gambling. Like, it's or any kind of, of things. Like, like the extreme regulation of alcohol supply yeah. in Scandinavia, for example, that you and I both have, um, you know, experience, the experience with, yeah. of. I mean, and there is, and not to mention the. Um, the role of First Nations American communities in gambling in the United States, where First Nation communities run casinos on their land as a way of putting those profits into um, community development and maintenance of traditional um, mm. com- communities and all kinds of things. Like, And I think that given the fact that Crown has been exposed as doing unbelievably dodgy things, when you, when you match vice with that kind of profit motive, and I say vice in a, in a moral, yeah. not a legal sense here, um, that you know there, there are incentives built in the system to be dodgy, to turn a blind eye, to just keep raking in the money. There's that wonderful ter- a term, I think it's from Bugsy Siegel, it's probably Bugsy Siegel, somebody from Las Vegas, said the only way to make money in a casino is to own one. Yeah. You know, and certainly why aren't we looking at a government or a non-profit organisation taking over that kind of licensing because then you're liberated of that, you know, 
that greed and profit motive. And certainly I say this coming from an RSL background, like the reason why gaming licences were given to the registered club industry in New South Wales was so either returned service personnel or yachties or sports clubs could have a way of making money that they could then put into activities for the communities they represented, that having a few pokies and selling alcohol, you know, in a thoroughly regulated environment was the way that they could make money to provide $1 pensioner lunches and, you know, yeah. the kind of theatre shows that I saw when I was a kid when we used to go to the pantomime and stuff like that, that was all subsidised and free and paid for through that kind of model. I mean, if the state government of New South Wales really want to run on that, you know, neoliberal, mm. everybody, no, we don't have citizens, we have customers kind of model, I think, you know, a casino is a wonderful source of voluntary taxation, don't and, you? And like, of course, absolutely. That'd solve your public health problems in New South Wales. They'd get a few schools built. And, and of course, Crown does do cheap meals like casinos have picked up all of those cultural things and embedded them in their own operations because they keep people involved in the facility they keep people bringing back to the facility Uh, and of course when it's an RSL there's a broader community engagement piece but when it's a casino the cheap meal is just there to keep you in front in the in the gaming establishment right like it doesn't you don't then attend an rsl event or a function um you just have your cheap steak and then go back to the tables yeah you're not doing the dawn service at crown that's not a thing exactly i've got to say like i've had some amazing experiences at various gambling facilities across the world obviously because of my dad and my own particular interest in uh, games of chance and skill and in the High Rollers room in Las Vegas mm. at the Bellagio, which is one of the you know amazing yes. hotels, incredible place, they actually pump a different scent through the High Rollers room. So they in the Vegas yeah. hotels they pump these scents through the air conditioning system to make you you know more a bit sleepy and not so you know acute yeah. and more likely to gamble. And there's they actually use a different scent just so the High Roller experience is even more rarefied. Oh my god! Well, look, talking about the class divisions in our society, if I can draw that line. Yeah, you don't want to know what I had to do to get into that room. Yes, continue. I think one of the other things that's really uh, happened this week is the first Senate hearing into the Morrison Omnibus IR bill, uh, and we're starting to see this conflict around workplace rights, wages, job security take a bit more shape. So people might remember we discussed this a little bit last year. Where they're banding together heaps and heaps of changes to the law and calling it an omnibus, which of course means, you know, a vehicle of many things. And... The bill was introduced into the parliament at the end of last year. We then had sort of Christmas, the break, um, and there was some sort of speculation that maybe Morrison was going to try and rush this through without people really understanding what was going on. Um, The Senate said, no, no, we're going to have hearings. The first one was this week in Townsville. uh, And really what's come out of this is pretty amazing, Van. You know, we're seeing the head of the Fair Work Commission say this law is unnecessary. A person who has headed a government entity under Liberal government for eight years now. And he's really, you know, when it comes to the independent umpire, it doesn't get much more independent than Ian Ross. Uh, He says, we don't need this. This is not not the solution to improve bargaining. This will just create problems. You've then got 
35 uh, workplace law experts who gave evidence that said this will put downward pressure on wages and conditions at a time where we need upward pressure on wages. Uh, Because we need people to have more money to spend in the economy to recoup the losses of all the lockdowns and the impact of coronavirus. We need people to be paid more money so they can buy more services and things. Absolutely. So you've seen them basically come out and say there's no way that these changes increase wages. In fact, they're more likely to decrease wages. So it goes totally against the government's um, supposed purpose and absolutely against their rhetoric. Uh, Even though it goes absolutely in cahoots with 40 years of behaviour from the Liberal Party who have entirely eaten the neoliberal biscuit and whose interest is in a two-speed economy, one where a professional class of highly skilled and or property-owning individuals can profit off the ongoing misery, low wages and poor conditions and workplace insecurity of everybody who's actually doing the work. And this is the really crazy thing in my mind is that they have such a fervent belief in this, or public belief anyway, in this supply and demand uh, kind of dichotomy uh, arrangement when it comes to labour. Like if you have lower unemployment, then you'll have higher wages automatically. Like these two things are set in stone. This is the natural order of things. But that's not what the economy's been like for years. No, but it's not, is it? Because even while the RBA, and we discussed this last week, the RBA has said we have to get unemployment down before wages will grow and wages will stay really, really low for the next few years because they're saying the same thing. These two things are set in stone and they move together. But the reality is that they don't. So just look at the debate and the discussion around fruit picking and vegetable picking in Australia. Here you've got an industry that says it's in desperate need, in desperate need of people, and there's tons of things rotting and all the rest of it. But they're not increasing wages. And in fact, there was one example, and we discussed it last week, where a farmer had increased wages and suddenly... Had all these fruit pickers. Had all these fruit pickers. And they were locals. And they were locals. Unbelievable. But what does the Liberal, what does the Morrison government do? They say, well, we'll, we will create a pool of exploitable labour for you to use in order to make sure that there's no upward pressure on wages. Because any little point of upward pressure on wages is what they're trying to avoid. You know, it's the same thing. It's actually the same thing in a lot of our caring industries. Right? We know we need more carers in the disability sector, for example. In aged care. In aged care, for example. In child care. In child care. We need a mass diversification of these systems and more people employed. But at the same time, we see the Morrison government creating artificial caps, creating downward pressure, creating funding arrangements, because these are all sectors that get funding of some kind or another, that push wages down. So while you've got people screaming out going... I've got an NDIS plan, but I can't get workers to fulfil it for months because they're not available. Or I want to put my child in childcare, but there's no places available because there's no staff to do it. You've got the government refusing to give people the opportunity to increase wages, refusing to facilitate the increase of wages, and thus you've got this problem. So there's a real there's a real kind of almost schizophrenia in the approach that they take. 
publicly, we want to increase wages. And wage increases are connected to demand in the economy. But you had um, Matthias Cormann, when he was finance minister, saying that slip. wage de- suppression was a deliberate feature of the economy. I mean, we've known this for years. He this did. is the basis of neoliberalism. They call it the Phillips curve. And it's this, you know, yeah. multi-decade old graph that, you know, a graph that tells you, not backed by facts or evidence, mind you, that um, that high unemployment puts downward pressure on wages and low unemployment puts upward pressure on wages. And they believe this as if this is a sacrament a of God. effect on uh, inflation. Right? There are literally Mormons who have less belief in magical underwear than there are neoliberals who believe in the Phillips curve. And yet this data keeps coming in. All the work that Tom, economists like Thomas Piketty have done mm. and um, it, it, and all the other economists I can't admit, Stieglitz and Paul Krugman again and again going, this is not true, the data does not back this up, and yet here we are. It was interesting because you and I were having a discussion the other day about performance-based rates of pay, and this mm. is a big thing in America, particularly in education. The educate and um, the primary and secondary school, elementary, whatever they call it in America, that they have performance based pay rates. And the idea is that if you work harder and you um, mm. hit more key performance indicators, you'll get paid more. And that's a structural incentive built into the system for you to strive. Mm. And of course, in reality, what that means is the people who have the greatest performance outcomes mm. <laughs> tend not to get hired because they're more expensive <laughs> and systems that are all about budgetary savings go for the lower skilled, lower qualified employees from a, from a mm. more impoverished skills base because they're cheaper workers and what they have to deliver in order to meet budget guidelines is efficiency dividends. Mm. So you actually put an incentive in the system to discourage people from performing better because the focus is around spending as little money as possible. And the, and the absolute crazy thing is that the flip side, so where that comes from, of course, is that in the private sector, this idea that incentive-based pay r- results in more sales, better share price, all these sorts of metrics and outcomes. David Peets, who's an Australian academic, has done a lot of research on this, a lot of research on this from examples from Australia, America, and Europe. And generally, what's found is that performance-based pay in the private sector at executive and senior levels doesn't have doesn't have a a positive impact on the performance of a company. So this kind of blind, oh, well, they do that in the private sector, we're going to apply it to teaching, Uh, we're going to apply it in the public sector approach to these things, means that you've taken something that doesn't work over here, misapplied it over here, and it works even worse. Like the, the, the outcome is even worse in the in the public sector. So it's it's just phenomenally upside down, this kind of approach to IR, because it doesn't it doesn't actually have any positive outcomes. It's all ideological. We know that it's Yeah, all it has no relationship to reality. It doesn't look how systems work. It doesn't look at how teams work. It doesn't look at mixtures of skills in the workplace and what that means around performance. You know, it's a really interesting thing coming from the arts where, you know, we're constantly written off, but in the arts, we're very aware of the fact that it takes an entire ecology of workers to create the extraordinary performance mm. of one person. You know, like Shakespeare and Brecht and, you know, Marla, these greats of the arts actually exist in an ecology where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in a city, in a community, in a country, in a language who are all making contributions to the development of practice and insights and formal ingenuity and innovation. And we're all very 
very aware of the part that everybody plays. There are thousands of playwrights who never became famous, all who helped to create Shakespeare because of the ecology that they were mm. part of and developed. And it's just it's extraordinary, like these weird neoliberal ideas of competition, competitiveness and individualism and performance-based pay and these strange incentives that again and again are not borne out by any realistic appreciation of how workplaces or industries, let alone like individual workers, actually perform on the job and what what it takes to create those conditions. And ultimately, it's because they don't care because it's about a moneyed group of people holding on to their money and their status and their privilege and their power, Mm. tearing down the ladders that they climbed, you know, the way that they lock people out of education Mm -hmm. and we're living in an economy now that if you don't already have a big pile of capital of your own, creating businesses and things are really difficult. Like opportunities for innovation and entrepreneurship in the economy are becoming more and more, and this is certainly the case in America, based on the fortune of your birth rather than your actual capacity. And it's it's... this uh, this is related to the IR omnibus bill because it's more of these settings that create this this separate these two separate economies Absolutely. these parallel economies of the haves and the have-nots and it really just gets down to that and some of the some of the witness testimonies so some of the testimony from real working people is devastating it's really really hard to hear and to listen to and to watch but I really encourage everybody to do it because these are people who have looked at the detail looked at the situation that they're in and applied what is put forward in the legislation to their circumstance and what they think could then happen. And you've got people talking about, well, I'll lose my job. You've got people talking about, well, that means my boss will be able to put lower lower pay on the table and if I turn it down, I'll lose my job. Or I get sacked for three months when it's a quiet period and I have no guarantee of being re-employed in that all, three months' time and no income support during that time. All of these problems. Uh, so I'd encourage people to check out the Australian Union's campaign around this because it is... Stop the bus! Yeah, it is really, Stop really... Stop the bus! It is really, really interesting because those worker stories, I think, are really powerful and it gives you a real insight into the real um, impacts on people. Um, but there's also a lot of information there about the economy. There's information there about dragging down spending and what that'll do for jobs. So there's lots There's lots in that. Um, I also want to just point out a couple of things. One, um, the the reaction to the CFMEU ad on this, the omnibus bus ad, if I could put it that way. If you haven't seen it, it involves a group of working people standing in the middle of the road looking in fear and horror as Scott Morrison drives a bus into them. Yeah, that says, you know... There's no blood, Yeah, and, and no and eyeballs popping out of people's heads. You don't heads. see anything connect with anybody, but... But um, Paul Murray, the uh, Sky Sky News... That guy. Guy, jeez, he's, he's starting to look every bit like a right-wing US columnist, uh, TV personality, isn't he? But yeah, All we have to wait for is for him to claim with his own TV show that he's been silenced and then he would <laughs> absolutely be within that right-wing mold. I think he's so done, silenced. I think he's done that before. So anyway, so there's a there's a really interesting little clip of him talking about this ad and he calls it the CFMU ad, then the ETU ad. He gets very confused 
used. It is authorised by Dave Noonan from the CFMU, just to be really clear about that. He then yeah, sort in of, writing on the ad. In writing on the ad. With a voiceover. He, he, he seems to think it's an elbow-made ad, an elbow should condemn it. Uh, he then um, so he sort of tries to make it a political correctness argument about if this was a female Prime Minister who was from a progressive side of politics and they were driving the bus, you know, people would be outraged. It's like, well... Paul, frankly, if a, a pro- feminist prime minister from a progressive party would not be driving a bus into working people, that's and not what we believe on our side of politics. We don't do that to the people who actually built this country. Absolutely, and you've seen some people. Some people have come out. Porter's come out and condemned it as the lowest act in Australian politics. Christian Porter, the oh, lowest no. act in Australian <laughs> oh, politics. No. That's interesting because I seem to remember a recent documentary that involves some discussion of what low acts Christian Porter may be getting up to and his taxpayer-funded time. It's just phenomenal. You know, a few low acts, Christian, one or two. As you, as you and I both know, Van, if you're getting to the point where your opponents are attacking the content of your ad, you've probably struck a sore point. Oh, the form of your ad. Yeah. The form of your ad, not even the content. I can tell you that because I went to drama school. But yes, oh, I just find it hilarious, like this petticoat clutching, how dare you? How very dare you? And I'm like, aren't you the guys who defended all those racist cartoons by Bill Lee? Oh, yeah. No, they want this like, taken off the air. Oh, yes. Didn't you, didn't you say that people campaigning for marriage equality were like gay? Nazis, or I seem to have some kind of free speech element campaign thing. Uh, Uh, Forgive me. I mean, these guys are so silenced, we never hear from them. I know. The Morrison government has no belief in free speech, believe you me. We've talked about that before as well. And look, just to wrap up on this topic, I think it's important that people understand that there is actually genuine choice when it comes to these issues, right? Like, it's not just about campaigning against the Morrison omnibus bill, and of course people need to do that because it is a dangerous bill for jobs, wages and your conditions at work. Not to mention money going into the economy that could support small business. If you take people's wages down and out of the economy, that is less customers, people. The the flip side is, of course, that Elbows today come out and said that if Labor wins the next election, they'll implement minimum standards in the gig economy. So that's minimum wages, that's portable leave entitlements. That's actually the sorts of things that will help people and raise wages for those people and right across the economy. And transitioning uh, people who are on rolling contracts onto permanent contracts, yeah, so which this, you can imagine for someone like me is a dream beyond a dream. Well, in just about every developed country in the world, except for America, we always leave America out because they're not really that developed. <laughs> uh, but it, you have these rules. Rules. They make great TV, though. Sure, but you have rules that say you can't have ongoing rolling contracts. So unlike in Australia where academics and, uh, well, lots of people now, really, right across the economy, people can be on year after year after year of rolling contract. Most countries, they limit it to two years. Elbow saying, we're going to limit this to two years. If you if there's a job that needs to be done, then give that person a job, um, which I think is great. He's going to end the labour hire exploitation. So that's where companies might have an agreement that says, Van, you've got to be paid, say, $36 an hour, but I want to hire some people and I don't want to pay them that much, so I'm going to go to a labour hire company where I can get away with paying $30 an hour. You and I end up doing the same job, but on different wages, so we're going to have a... And we know this is rife, particularly in the resource sector in Queensland. 
Absolutely. Which is, you know, which I've got to say, Ben, on a personal level, broke on level broke my heart about the last federal election, where Labor went to the election with really clear policies around workplace protection and doing something about labour hire and stopping this kind of outsourcing, and you had the whole Adani issue becoming one about somehow Liberals were on the sides of jobs in the mining industry when really the Liberals have facilitated an industrial relations legislative framework that is actually destroying the value in those jobs and constantly undercutting wages and conditions. And what's really pleasing is to see Albo commit to same job, same pay. So if you're doing the same job, you'll get the same pay and you can't the boss can't use labour hire to undercut you. Can I throw a curveball in this discussion? Sure. That I think Albo's messaging has been much stronger recently. Yeah, absolutely. I think Labor speaking about jobs and IR is the best thing they could possibly do because they believe in it and they have a caucus full of former trade union officials who actually are very confident speaking about these things. Well, it really shines through, doesn't it? And it's interesting to see that Morrison is really pushing to have the vote on this bill in March. Sooner rather than later. So they don't have time to actually organise and get people out on the streets opposing it. And and that's the reason I keep bringing it up. You know, if, if you feel like I've talked about this, Sylvan and I have talked about this a lot in the week on Wednesday, it's because there's a very short window of time here. Also because we're ruthless crusaders for the rights of the organised working class. I mean, that's the other bit. Absolutely. Now, that's sort of ending almost on a bit of a positive uh, note, which is unusual for us with our two main stories. So let's get into the good news now, because I think that's a nice transition. Now, what's your good news? Because I have a piece of good news and Ben has a piece of good news. What's making you smiley, Ben? Well, what's making me smiley is that Eddie Maguire has resigned as president of the Collingwood Football Club. That really brings a rose to your cheek. It really does. I mean, Eddie Maguire was the CEO of Channel 9 at one point. You know, that was yeah, a fairly totally unearned. unqualified, yeah. unearned position of CEO, caused enormous problems. Do you know when he was CEO of 9, he demanded more job cuts on one particular program than there were jobs? You know, the, exactly. <laughs> 20, over 20 years he's been president of the Collingwood Football Club. You know, they've been found to have systemic racism issues. He called it a proud day for the club when that report was released. He waited a week for, for I think, hoping that the kind of outrage about that comment would die down. Even in his um, departure, you know, he's really made it about himself. Like, I get that your, your resignation is about you, but it doesn't have to be about poor me. Like, Eddie Maguire's had over 20 years in charge of that football club. There's been issues and throughout And decades of opportunity. And, and he's made it, you know, one of the things he said, oh, people have latched onto what I've said. Um, I've become a lightning rod for vitriol. It's like, mate, you've... Overseen an organisation that has a systemic racism problem that has been exposed in an independent report. And And you could take the bull by the horns and go, well, actually, we're going to show leadership and we're going to deal with this program and uh, this problem. We're going to develop programs that show that we are better than this. The the report is called Do Better, and his response to it was to do worse. Exactly. Instead of saying, This is a proud day, he could have said, I am deeply sorry. Like, he could have started there. I think if he had started there, there would have been some sense that maybe, just maybe, Eddie Maguire was going to try and fix this problem. Anyway, it became clear that that he didn't even really understand the situation. He's gone now. I think that's a good outcome for the Collingwood Football Club. I think it's a good outcome for the AFL as well. We can't have, as as the situation with Packer and Crown is showing, right, where there are entrenched systemic boys clubs and closed doors and this kind of old school, it'll be right, mate, brigade in place, 
you're going to have problems. You're going to have serious problems. And Eddie Maguire, frankly, is a very totemic um, part of that. And him leaving Collingwood is good for Collingwood, good for the AFL, good for sport. And frankly, I hope it becomes a good thing for Melbourne and Victoria more broadly too, because he's exercised a lot of influence over the course of the last 20 years. Um, And really, he's just a good game show host. Like, fundamentally, that's who he is. Well, people defend him because, you know, he's from Broadmeadows and, you know, he he was a scholarship kid at a Christian Brothers school and he's come up from nowhere kind of thing. And it's like, mate, once you have been CEO of Channel 9, you're not really from the boondocks anymore. No. And to go from being the game show host of Channel 9 to being the CEO is an incredible thing. Like, yeah. It's, and it's so, like, unbelievable. I, I understand that there are people who really like him because, you know, I'm sure he's like very chatty and fun company, but that's not really the point. Like organisational leadership means leadership, not being everybody's mate or a good time or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been frustrating seeing a bit of, oh, you know, poor old Eddie. And it's like, yeah, but he's... He's really had a lot of breaks. Absolutely. And you know, not- and he's had opportunities to be awesome. He's really had more opportunities than the vast majority of Australians will ever see in their lives to, you know, be a hero. Mm. And has he been a hero? No. He's tried to fire more people on one program than actually worked for that program. And I've got to say, there's nothing poor about Eddie Maguire. No. Nothing poor about him at all. Who wants to be a millionaire? Well, Eddie Maguire is a millionaire. <laughs> Well, that's my good news anyway, and I think there's a lot of people who agree with me, but Van, you've got some good news as well. I do. I'm such an environmental sap, am I not? You are. You do. You'd love an environmental story, particularly a happy environmental story. So this one's about Namibia. Well, there you go. And Namibia's had a problem because it has a fishing industry. Right. And, and and catches all kinds of different fish and is you know very important in the economy. But the fishing industry has been killing birds and killing um, because... Nets I don't know if you've ever seen yeah nets and poles because what happens is you see these trawlers go out yep. and the birds follow the trawlers and then because they Eric Cantona once said yeah because really yeah yeah Eric Cantona said that yeah, the birds yeah. follow the trawlers yeah. if you if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about I'd encourage everyone to look up Eric Cantona's retirement speech and you'll understand that <laughs> when the trawlers go out the seagulls will follow it's very it, it's quite bizarre but beautiful in its own way you know the other day and this should have been a good news story when it happened, he was asked what was the highlight of his football career and Cantonar said, the time I kicked the fascist in the head. And go. Eric Cantonar. So anyway, these trawlers go out and they attract birds and they attract birds like the extremely endangered albatross mm-hmm. and they attract petrels and all of these vulnerable communities of birds. Anyway, um, working with scientists and working with fishing communities, they've come up with a solution and it's literally attaching streamers to the to the boats and to the nets. Mm. So these colourful streamers, and they look amazing, yep. flutter in the wind behind the trawlers. And guess what? The birds don't get caught? There has been a 98% reduction in bycatch, which is ac- things that are yep. accidentally caught, of birds since they started putting colourful streamers behind the boats. That's fantastic. It's a low-tech solution. It was worked on by, you know, working with those communities yep. and not just people going, stop fishing because of the birds kind of thing and going, how do we actually solve the problem? And they're already already seeing restoration in the populations of those birds. Fantastic. Well, that made me 
so happy. It is. That's a very good news story. That is the week on Wednesday. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. We continue to grow our audience, which is really only possible thanks to you, the listeners who share these episodes and talk to people about these episodes. Please keep doing that. And we'd like to say hi to our regular listeners, like people who get in contact with us and say, I listen to your show every week. And we're always like, oh my God, really? That's so exciting. And thank you to everyone who sent us an email. We've got more emails this week. I do try and work my way through them, but as you can imagine, it's actually quite a lot of comments now, which is really great to see, but I do apologise if it means there's a little bit of a delay. And thanks to the person who offered me a job, and I'd just like to say, Ben and I are more than happy to do like weddings or bar mitzvahs or yeah. anything else where we can entertain people with our fascinating insight into uh, you know, socialist, laborist, economic, political economy. And don't forget to grab uh, the weekend wrap every Sunday evening. Uh, for the 10 minutes of what's happened between the week on Wednesday and Sunday. Uh, That's the show for this week. Love you, Vanny. I love you too, and I love the dog. He is so cute. (laughs) Bye. Bye.